From August 15th to August 20th, in the year 636, one of the most important battles in world history took place. The participants in the battle couldn't have known it, but the results of that battle would shape world history for the next 1,400 years. Much of the geography of the world today can be traced back to the results of those six days. Learn more about the Battle of Yarmouk and one of the most important battles in world history on this episode of Everything Everywhere Daily. This episode is sponsored by Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. I recently had the chance to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond, and I can attest to its exceptional aromas with hints of caramel and vanilla intertwining with its oakiness, which provide a well-rounded flavor profile. Taking a sip is akin to experiencing a piece of bourbon history firsthand. Heaven Hill Distillery may be America's most quintessential bourbon distillery. Established in 1935 after the end of Prohibition, the distillery was established by the Shapira family and has remained a family-owned distillery to this day. In 1897, Congress passed the Bottled in Bond Act, which set forth strict rules for any bourbon labeled Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond bourbon goes beyond the stringent requirements of the law by aging its bourbon for seven years, not four. The end result is a gold medal-winning bourbon that truly stands out. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill reminds you, think wisely, drink wisely. This episode is sponsored by ButcherBox. Summer is right around the corner, and that means cookouts. No matter what your preferred food is for a cookout or a barbecue, ButcherBox can help you make it the best. If you want to serve up some hamburgers, ButcherBox has grass-fed ground beef to make the perfect smash burger. Want to cook up some steaks? Well, ButcherBox has that too, with some of the best cuts of steak, such as New York Strip, ribeye, and filet mignon. Do you like grilled chicken? Well, ButcherBox has some of the best pasture-raised chicken that you will find anywhere. And if you really want to wow people at your next cookout, you can try grilling some of their wild-caught salmon on a cedar plank. Sign up at ButcherBox.com daily and get a special deal. ButcherBox is offering my listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com daily and use code daily to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus get $20 off your first order. I considered doing an episode on the greatest battles in world history. I did quite a bit of research on the topic, and I eventually found myself asking the question, what is a great battle? I previously did an episode on the Battle of Cannae, where the Romans were routed by the Carthaginians during the Second Punic War. It's a very famous battle simply for the brilliant generalship of Hannibal. However, in the end, it didn't really matter. Rome lost the battle, but they still ended up winning the war. So I began trying to find battles that really turned the course of history. These type of conflicts wouldn't have been one European king fighting some other European king, but rather clashes of civilizations. A battle where, if things were to have gone differently, the world would be a very different place today. Sometimes it's a case of defeating an invading army, like in the Battle of Marathon, and sometimes it might be the success of a conquering army, like the Battle of Gaugamela. I still might do that episode, giving an overview of such battles, but I also wanted to give each of them their own due, because they're so important to creating the world we live in, and also because many of these battles are ones that most people have never heard of. That's the case with the battle I want to talk about today, the Battle of Yarmouk. 
the first great decisive battle between the early Islamic Caliphate and the Christian Byzantine Empire. The early 7th century was pretty close to peak Byzantine Empire, which if you remember back to the very first episode of this podcast ever, was actually just the Roman Empire which didn't fall apart in the East. At no point during the Byzantine Empire did anyone ever call it that, and so I'll be using the term Byzantine and Roman interchangeably during this show. Their biggest adversary during this period was the Sasanian Empire, which was primarily centered in modern-day Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. This East-West clash was the current version of a similar one which had gone on for a thousand years. First it was the Greeks and the Persians, then it was the Romans and the Parthians, and now it was the Byzantines and the Sasanians. The point is that neither the Byzantines nor the Sasanians were paying any attention to what was happening in the Arabian Peninsula. Arabia was a huge desert, and the people who lived there were nomadic. They weren't considered a threat to any of the major powers. Well, they probably should have paid more attention. In the first several decades of the 7th century, the Prophet Muhammad created a new state centered in the western Arabian city of Mecca. From there, he and his followers managed to unite the Arabian Peninsula through a series of conquests and conversions, and then began to expand outward. Muhammad died in 632, and his successor was his close advisor and father-in-law, Abu Bakr. He became the first caliph of the first caliphate, the Rashidun Caliphate. He and his successor, two years later, Umar, rapidly expanded out of the Arabian Peninsula. Much of this success was due in large part to the general Khalid ibn al-Walid. I previously did an entire episode on al-Walid, so I'm not going to go into too much depth on him here. However, I will simply say that al-Walid was unquestionably the greatest Muslim general of the period, and probably one of the top five or ten generals in world history. As the caliphate spread north into the Levant, they were on a collision course with the Byzantines. The Byzantines controlled everything around the eastern Mediterranean at that time, including what is today Egypt, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, and Turkey. The Byzantines under the emperor Heraclius had also recently conquered lands further to the east from the Sasanian Empire. Just as an aside, Heraclius is a really underestimated emperor. He was emperor for over 30 years, which is an incredibly long time for a Roman emperor, and has been largely forgotten by history, so I do think he might be worth an episode of his own in the future. The caliphate took Damascus in 634 and took the city of Emesa, now known as Homs, earlier in 636. By August 636, the two sides were ready for a showdown. The location was near the Yarmuk River, in what is today southeast of the Sea of Galilee near the Israeli-Jordanian border. Yarmuk is actually just a tributary of the Jordan River. The Muslim army was led by Khalid ibn al-Walid. The Caliph Umar didn't get along with him, but he knew he was the best general and put him in charge, which was a smart move because he never lost a battle. The Roman forces on the ground were led by an Armenian general by the name of Vahan. The Muslim forces were almost all Arab and Muslim, whereas the Byzantine forces were a mix of Slavs, Franks, Greeks, Georgians, Armenians, and Christian Arabs. The multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic nature of the Byzantine forces made them less cohesive than the Islamic forces. The Byzantine army was at least twice the size of the Muslim army. The estimates of the number of men-at-arms on each side varies widely. The original sources placed the number of soldiers in the Caliphate army at between 24,000 and 40,000 and the number of Byzantine soldiers between 100,000 and 240,000. Regardless what the actual numbers were, the Byzantines had a numerical advantage of at least 2 to 1, and possibly as high as 10 to 1. However, they had several problems. Since they had lost Damascus, they had issues with supplies and food, whereas the Caliphate did not. On the first day of fighting, the forces lined up against each other, and there was very little action. Champions from each side went out to fight each other, and there was a limited attack by the Byzantines just to test the Islamic forces. 
On day two, Bahan attacked at dawn when he thought the other side would be praying. He pushed his forces up the middle, but the main attack came on the flanks. Elwalid was ready, and after being pushed back, they managed to maintain their position until sunset. On days three and four, the Byzantines tried again to push through with their superior numbers, but each time they were beaten back by Elwalid and his men. On day five, Bahan and the Byzantines sought peace. Abu Ubadiah, the governor of Syria, was ecstatic that they could bring the fighting to a negotiated end, but Elwalid rejected the offer. This was what he was looking for. He now knew that after days of failed attacks, the enemy was demoralized, and now was the time for him to strike. On the sixth and final day of the battle, Elwalid enacted his plan of attack. The Arab infantry moved forward to engage with the Byzantine infantry. And while that was happening, Elwalid sent his cavalry around the Byzantine left to their rear to push the Byzantine cavalry off the field of battle. With that, the Byzantine infantry was surrounded on three sides, and the rout began. Soldiers that weren't cut down either ran into the Yarmouk River and drowned, or jumped off a nearby cliff. The Byzantines lost about half of their entire force. The deaths were in the tens of thousands, depending on the numbers you accept. The Islamic forces, on the other hand, only lost a few thousand. Estimates are between one and 4,000 men. This battle completely changed the geopolitical landscape of the 7th century. Syria and the entire Levant became predominantly Muslim, which it still is today. That same year, 636, they defeated the Sasanian Empire at the Battle of al Qadisiyah. The next year, they easily took Jerusalem, which, over 400 years later, would be the impetus for the First Crusade. Muslim forces continued one of the most rapid expansions of territorial acquisition in world history, spreading through North Africa and eastward into Persia and Central Asia. It wasn't until the Battle of Tours, almost a hundred years later, which actually took place in France, that the expansion of the Caliphate was halted. If the Battle of Yarmouk had gone the other way, and it easily could have if things were just a bit different, the Muslim forces under the Caliph Umar and General Khalid ibn al-Walid would have been pushed back into the Arabian Peninsula, and world history would have taken a radically different course. As for the generals, Vahan was most probably killed in action on the last day of battle. There were rumors about him surviving and becoming a hermit back in Armenia, but there was never any actual documentation. Khalid ibn al-Walid was pretty much forcibly retired soon afterwards. He died in the city of Homs in Syria, and his mausoleum is still there today. Even if you had never heard of the Battle of Yarmouk, it easily qualifies as one of the most significant battles in world history. In the words of military historian George Nafsinger, quote, Although Yarmouk is little known today, it is one of the most decisive battles in human history. Had Herculeus's forces prevailed, the modern world would be so changed as to be unrecognizable. Everything Everywhere Daily is an Airwave Media podcast. The associate producers are Thor Thompson and Peter Bennett. I just wanted to give a quick update on the state of the podcast, sort of a first quarter report. As I'm sure you all know, producing this sort of podcast is a lot of work. I am literally the only person who works on it, and I have no one else who helps me with any other aspect of the show. All the research, the writing, the recording, the editing, the promotion, and the marketing are all done by myself. The folks over at Airwave Media help me find advertisers, but that's it. So it's basically a full-time job where I don't get weekends off, and so far it doesn't come anywhere close to even paying a part-time income. The weird thing about the podcasting business is only the top 1% or 2% of podcasters are actually able to make a living from it. And the vast majority of those people are either celebrities before they started, or work for large networks that actually own the show and just pay them a salary. The show has grown quite a bit in 2022 so far. 
Things are looking better every day, and I can definitely see a light at the end of the tunnel. My immediate goal is just to get to a point where I can cover basic expenses. From there, I have plans to hire some more help to improve the show, and maybe even at some point in the future, spin off other related podcasts. Anything you can do to help me continue doing the show would be appreciated. If you could become a supporter over at Patreon.com, that would be great. I still have an executive producer spot available. But you could also just tell your friends about the show, or share episodes you like with your friends on Facebook or Twitter. Anything you could do would be appreciated. I don't make appeals like this very often, and I don't intend to make a habit out of it. But if you enjoy what I'm doing, please do what you can to help spread the word.